Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. And we only have four Sundays before Christmas, and I want us to continue verse by verse through this study of the book of Romans. We come this morning to the fifth chapter, verses one through five, our text today. The title of the message, The Results of Justification. Of course, that is the overarching theme of this book, the doctrine of justification by faith. You recall that in chapter four, the apostle Paul reached back into history and called two great patriarchs of the Old Testament faith, Abraham and David, to the witness stand. And his purpose for calling them was to prove once for all that God's plan of redemption has always been by grace alone through faith alone. His point was that even the patriarchs were not saved by works righteousness, but rather by faith. Now the three chapters preceding chapter four, the apostle Paul laid out the case against all humanity. The Gentiles, the morally and ethically upright, and then his own countrymen, the Jews, all stand guilty before God and worthy of his wrath. And then in chapter three, verse 20, he offers the the first release of pressure, the, the first good news, and that is that God has made a way for all of these people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to be reconciled to him, to be made right with him. But there's only one way, and that way is through justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So in chapter five, as we begin today, we have a very clear transition of thought. If chapter four was concerned with the universality of justification by faith, chapter five identifies the results of justification by faith, or another way to say it is the implications of justification by faith. And this morning we're going to examine four of those implications, and Lord willing, next Sunday speak on the reality that we can have true assurance of salvation. Now, another book that the Apostle Paul wrote in our New Testament canon is the book of Ephesians. You might recall that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul pauses twice as he's writing this letter to pray. And both times he prays for similar things. Basically, he prays that the believers in the church at Ephesus, and by extension, all believers, would have a deeper appreciation for the love of Christ. That is for the gospel, for all that he's done for us. And I hope that you took some time this week, this Thanksgiving week, to thank the Lord for your salvation, if you are born again, and to ponder and meditate upon the greatness of your salvation. It's like a multifaceted diamond. When we first receive it, we understand that it's valuable, but as time goes on, as we have a greater appreciation for the cut and the clarity of the diamond, uh, we see something new in it all the time. And that's what Paul wanted for every believer that they would continue to grow in grace and sanctification. And as they did, certainly they'd have a deeper and more full appreciation for what Christ has done. That's what he's doing here in chapter five. He's laying out just a few of the wonderful truths that are ours by virtue of being connected with Christ by faith. And so let's read our text this morning. Romans chapter five, verses one through five. It begins with that transition word, therefore. And mark that in your Bible because it helps us when we're reading. It transitions from one thought to the next. You have three basic thoughts so far in these first five chapters. The first thought is we're all guilty. 
And because we're all guilty, he transitions into the proof that justification is our only hope. And now he transitions into the multifaceted nature of justification here in chapter five. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now the first dimension, the first implication of the doctrine of justification by faith is a new peace, new peace. This time of year, it's not unusual to receive a greeting card in the mail that says on the front, peace on earth. That's of course a reference to the message of the angels, to the shepherds as recorded in Luke chapter two, verse 14. In fact, if you noticed on your program today, one of the songs uh, that our group led us in today was uh, in Latin and peace on earth. And this is a thought that we have this time of year. But um, generally speaking, there's two sorts of peace mentioned in the Bible. Number one is the cessation of hostilities between those who were enemies of one another. But most often we think of an internal peace or a sense of well-being. This is what Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men because the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God and what? The peace of God, which passes human comprehension, will stand guard over your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Yes, there is an internal sense of well-being for those who have assurance of regeneration and a full understanding of justification by faith. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the first type of peace, which is a cessation, an end to hostilities between warring parties. Now, that is the condition of the sinner before salvation. We, we, have a lot of words that we take in the Bible that describe a lost person's condition. Number one, I just used the word lost. Uh, scripture says, all we like sheep go astray. We wander, we, we are far away from the Lord and he pursues us and he finds us. The scripture says that before we're saved, we're blind spiritually. We can't discern truth. Uh, in fact, Paul takes a step farther and says, the truth is we're spiritually dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins, totally unresponsive to spiritual stimulus. And, and in Psalm 107, and I would like it if you'd mark that in your Bible and go back and read it later today. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. I probably preach from this passage more than any other over the last 20 or 30 years. And in Psalm 107, the psalmist describes his own journey of faith. And he describes the condition of a person before God intervenes and rescues him. And he uses four little vignettes. He says, we were like a, a party in the desert who's lost their way. Now that certainly happened a lot in the Middle East. They didn't have GPS systems. And, and so you'd have a trading party who was going from one city to the next across the sands of the desert. And they would have these storms that would come up and blow them off course and cover up the trail. And and they would just find themselves wandering aimlessly in the desert. And many of those people lost their lives. He says, that's how I was before the Lord rescued me. I was aimless, surely would have died, but I called out to God and he rescued me. He describes his own condition as a person who was sick on his deathbed, unable to eat, 
unable to take any sort of nourishment, who was surely going to die. And in that last moment of desperation, he called out to God and God heard him and he healed his body. And then he says he's like a person who's on death row behind prison bars, sentenced to death. The clock is ticking and he calls out to God for mercy and God was merciful and opened up to prison and set him free. And then he said he's like a person on a ship in the middle of a tempest, tossed and turned and about to go under for the last time. And he calls out to God and God heard him and he rescued him. There are many ways that we can describe our condition before the Lord saved us. But one we don't often talk about and we should is the fact that we were not only lost, blind, spiritually dead, about to go under for the last time, we found ourselves to be enemies of God. He said, no, Pastor, I, I'm not an enemy of God. I have a warm spot in my heart for the Lord Jesus, even though I don't call myself a Christian. You know, most Americans, even surveys today, say that they have a favorable view of the person of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean they're born again. It just means they have a soft spot in their heart for Jesus. But the Bible says, through our sinfulness, we reveal ourselves to be enemies of God. That is, we are hostile towards Him. Colossians 1.21 says it this way, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. This is Paul describing a saved person before they were saved. In the past, you were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. See, our condition before we were saved is not that we were just in need of some touching up around the edges. We didn't need just a little self-reform. We were open we are in open warfare against the Holy God through our sinfulness. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but our sin proves it's true. And as sovereign of the universe, God says he will ultimately bring all of his enemies into subjection. That's part of what it means that God is sovereign. He will put all enemies under his foot. And yet God is gracious, isn't he? And he's kind and he offers forgiveness and reconciliation, and yes, peace through faith in His Son. And this peace of God between warring parties, where He allows us no longer to be called enemies, but sons and daughters of the Most High. In fact, He calls us friends. What a wonderful implication of the doctrine of justification by faith that is. We have a new peace. Secondly, Scripture here in verse 2 indicates that we also have a new hope. A new hope. Now, if you grew up in the rural south like I did, and if you traveled down backcountry roads, you were bound to run into a sign that says, New Hope Baptist Church, this way. There must be 10,000 churches in America called New Hope. Because that's something that, that uh, brings inspiration to us, the idea that there's a better day coming. In fact, after I graduated college. My first job as a school teacher was at New Hope, Mississippi. And unfortunately, we had a very poor football team. And so our rivals took to calling us No Hope High School. <laughs> the Bible says that when we're born again, we have a new hope. Look at verse two. It says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That word exult is not a word we use too often, but it means this, to be jubilant because of triumph. 
some of you uh, whose football teams won over the holiday, exulted in that. You rejoiced greatly. You were jubilant because of that triumph. Well, he says, because of the triumph that Christ has over death and hell, and because we are united with Christ through faith, we also exult in hope. Now, hope is the confident expectation of something not yet realized. We sing a song here, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But you and I know the truth, and it's um, often brought to the surface this time of year, is that we are surrounded by hopeless people on all sides. People living for their next thrill or high because they have no confidence in a brighter future. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We die is their philosophy of life. They, they don't have any hope for the future. 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul describes to the young pastor a Christian's hope. says, we have, our, we have fixed our hope on the living God. That is, we have firmly attached ourselves to that which is eternal, and our hope is in Christ alone. Hope is an essential trait for the human existence. There is no more desperate condition in humanity than a person who has lost all hope. They see no brighter day ahead. This life is difficult. It's hard, to say the least. And Christian hope is incredibly important. 2 Corinthians 4, 9 through 11 says this, speaking of Christians. He says, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered into death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal body. Now those verses make little to no sense to a person who hasn't experienced the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Paul who spent most of his adult life in prison. In fact, Paul listed for these dear saints some of the tribulations that he'd gone through in his life. He says, I was beaten with rods. He says, I was stoned nearly to death, run out of town on a rail, in other words. He was shipwrecked. He was bobbing up and down in the ocean for a 24-hour period. Um, he was in dangers often, he says, and not to mention all of the grief that he had that he bore on behalf of other people in context of the local church. And so when he says he's persecuted, he's not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole. Forsaken. Yes, there are those who turned their back on the Apostle Paul. He was cast down. But he says not destroyed. Why? Because he clung to the hope that he found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the scripture says that we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. The implication of that is God has never promised that when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Christ, that you become exempt from the trials and tribulations of life. There's no such promise in all the Bible. If you're listening to or reading preachers who are telling you that, you're listening to a false teacher. In fact, Lord Jesus says, when you become a follower of his life, it's likely to get more difficult. He says to be a follower of Christ means to take up your cross, which was an instrument of execution and torture, and follow me, and a servant is not greater than his master. We can expect the same treatment that the, the, the Lord received. But 
we can also follow his example of being victorious even through that persecution. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Our hope is based on a brighter future. And Jesus, of course, is our great example of this. We can endure all manner of suffering and hardship so long as we have the assurance of a better day because of the promises of God through Christ. And that assurance of hope gives us, thirdly, a new perspective on life and on suffering. We not only have a new hope, we have a new perspective on suffering. Look at verse 3. He says, and not only this, but we also exult in tribulation. So he says we exult in hope, that makes sense. But to say we are jubilant because of triumph in tribulations. That's why the world looks at Christians going through difficult times and they scratch their head and say, how can you do that? Knowing that tribulation, he says, brings perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. You see, before we're born again, before we're saved, suffering is something that seems meaningless. It is to be avoided at all costs because we don't see any benefit to the sufferer. But when we are saved, we have a new perspective on suffering. Suffering becomes the means of our sanctification. It's not that uh, we look for trouble or we have a death wish or that we enjoy suffering in any way. It means we rejoice at what suffering and trials are going to produce in our lives. See, tribulations, the word here means pressures. Specifically, pressures that come upon us because of our close identity and identification with Christ and his church. And Paul says these tribulations, these pressures of life, lead to certain things. Perseverance, he says, and patience. And over time, he says, this proves our character. It's the same thing Jesus' brother James wrote in his epistle. Where he said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials and tribulations. It's like that sword we talked about last week. The blade is passed through the fire over and again. And every time it's passed through the fire, the Lord is removing those things which are impurities in your lives. And he's leaving behind a quality of faith that proves its character through endurance. And so we call these things testings. And as your faith is tested, it is also strengthened so that you can persevere under incredible pressure with your faith intact. I have seen it time and time again in this church over the last 21 years. Saints who throughout their lifetime were making progress in sanctification and they come to the end and they're faced with cancer, they're faced with difficult diagnosis of all kinds, they're, they're faced with financial problems, and yet their faith remains intact. In fact, not only does their faith remain intact, it proves itself to be of incredible worth and value. How many times have I seen brothers and sisters in this church on their last days of life barely able to lift their head off the bed and their health care workers would come to help them endure these last days and they will share the gospel with these people. We have baptized in this very baptistry a number of health care workers who were led to saving faith by Christians, members of this church in their last days of life. Because their faith 
prove to be genuine through suffering. And that gives us a new perspective on suffering. Suffering is the means that God often uses to mature us, to remove impurities from our lives so that we are the most useful vessel, the most useful instrument in the Lord's hand that we could possibly to be. So finally today, let's look at the fourth implication of justification by faith. And by the way, I'm not making any claim that these four implications are the only four. Any more than I would have claimed that a multifaceted diamond only has four facets. These are just four that Paul brings to our attention. And that is, verse 5 teaches us, a new love comes to those who are born again. A new love. Verse 5 says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now the Bible declares that the greatest and most obvious evidence that a person has truly been born again is love. Now you think about it. Um, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the Bible tells us through Jesus' parable about the soils, that the only one that proved itself to be genuine is the plant that came up and did what? It produced fruit. And the Scripture tells us in the New Testament some of these fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one that's listed by the Apostle Paul? Love. In fact, the Scripture says of all Christians that you will know them by their love one for another. Paul says faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So where does this new love come from? Well, Paul says here, it has been poured out by God into our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14, and he was concerned not for his own well-being, even though he knew the cross was just days away. He said to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. And one of the ways that he comforted their anxious hearts was the promise of the Holy Spirit. He said that when he would go away, he would send another, a comforter, he said, who would convict of sin and judgment and righteousness. The Holy Spirit has a number of roles in our lives. But one of the primary roles that he has is to give us the love of God. He says, through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. Now, there's a similar phrase here that we find in Psalm 23. Remember when David is describing God's shepherding over his life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But there's a little phrase in there we sometimes overlook. He says, my cup overflows. Now, in the Bible, this, this metaphor of a cup um, can be used in two ways. One positive, one negative. Oftentimes it's used negatively. It's a cup of wrath. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, and he was praying so intensely, he was bleeding. And he called to the Father and says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, this, this cup of wrath. He described to the sons of thunder, James and John, this wrath, this cup of suffering. And... Many times in the Bible, we find the cup of wrath being poured out by God. But in the 23rd Psalm, it's not that way. 
He's talking about the cup of blessing. In other words, as David looked back on his life, he saw the love of God and his blessings being poured into his life. He says, my vessel is too small to contain it. He says, my cup overflows. It spills out on the other sides. When I talk to my four children about how to make friends and who to spend the most time with, I tell them you find a person like that who has the blessings of God and the love of God so manifest in their life that they can't contain it, that it's spilling over the sides. Because when you spend enough time with people like that, you get secondary blessings just by being in their presence because the Lord's blessings are too great for them and they spill over to you. And when he's talking about love here, he says the love of God is shed abroad or poured out into our hearts to the degree that that we can't even contain it and it spills over the side and then other people benefit from it. That is God's love is so abundant that it overflows to those around us. And when he says he pours it out, he means he lavishes it upon us. There's a little story in the New Testament as Jesus was nearing the end of his life and there was a woman who had an alabaster bottle of perfume. Do you remember? And she brought it to Jesus and she broke it open and the scripture says she lavished it upon him. She poured it out on him. You know, when you go to the mall, that person who sprays that spritz of perfume in your face, thankfully they don't pour the whole bottle over your head or else you wouldn't be allowed back in the house. That's what this woman did. She didn't dab a little bit and put it behind the ears of Jesus. She broke the bottle open and poured it on him. This is the word here for how the Lord loves us. He lavishes, he pours out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit this love. And when that happens, other people are bound to benefit. And the reason we're now capable of loving other people the way God wants us to love them is because of the love that he gave us through his spirit. Jesus said it this way, we love him because he first loved us. So how does that manifest itself in our lives from day to day? Well, first of all, he gives us a love for God that we never had before. Remember I said most people have a favorable impression of Jesus or God. That's not love. When we're born again, he gives us a love for God and the things of God. That means we have a love for God's word, which manifests itself through a hunger for it, to read it, to meditate upon it, to sit under the preaching of God's word. Can you remember when you were first born again, that insatiable desire you had to hear the word of God taught? That comes from the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. So it's a love for God, a love for his word, but, but thirdly, a love for God's people. A love for God's people. We've all heard people say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That's impossible. Because when you love Christ, you love those that Jesus died for. You love that those that he's most precious in his eyes. And then ultimately, you have a love for God's glory. That over time and through sanctification, your heart's desire and your greatest ambition in life is not for personal achievements or for rewards, or for financial attainment. 
that is the singular focus of your life is the glory of God. To make much of him. To make him known among people who don't, know, who don't yet know him. And, and this is the love that, that God gives, this new love. And so in conclusion, I, I'd ask you a question. Do, do those four things describe your personal experience? Do you have a love for God? Do you have a love for God's word? Do you have a love for God's people? And do you have a love for God's glory? And if the answer to those questions is yes, I'd say um, you have reason to have assurance for salvation. But if you say, Pastor, no, I, I don't love God. In fact, he rarely crosses my mind. I, I don't love God's word. In fact, I find it, it boring and off-putting. I, I can't stand God's people. <laughs> those people down at the church drive me crazy. Don't understand them. And really, I'm living my life for my own gratification, my own glory. Well, you've just described a person who needs to be born again. And so I want to make that offer of salvation today. Remember I said it's worse than you think. It's not just that you need a little buffing up around the edges. It's not just you need to tie your shoes on a little tighter and try a little harder to be good. The Bible describes you as an enemy of God. And your sins and your sinfulness offers testimony that you are in open warfare to God. And let me tell you something that should be very obvious. When you declare war against an omnipotent being, you will lose. And so you have only one logical strategy, and that is to sue for peace. How do you have peace with God? Well, the Bible says here in Romans chapter 5, there's only one way, and that is the grace of of God alone through faith in Christ alone. That is the ultimate implication of justification by faith. You have to come to him on his terms. And if I could summarize God's terms for peace in one sentence, in one phrase, it would be this, unconditional surrender. You don't have anything to negotiate with. You don't have any leverage. In the first three chapters of Romans, he has laid us all bare and removed any excuse, any hint of a reason why we don't deserve God's judgment. And when he gets us to that point of absolute desperation, then he offers hope. See, long as you're clinging to, to some hope that you can reform yourself or that you can earn God's favor, you, you can't be saved. You have to come to him on his terms. What do we always say here? Empty hands. Empty pockets. Nothing to God I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Trust only in Christ and nothing else. And you'll be saved. You'll be born again. And here are some things that will happen in your life. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. And when he indwells you, he will also pour out his love within you. And you'll find yourself loving people and things you've never loved before. You'll find yourself thinking about the attributes of God as you're driving down the road. <laughs> you'll find yourself spontaneously erupting in song of praise to the Lord. 
You'll find yourself hungry and thirsty for the word of God. You'll find yourself compassionate and merciful towards other people, especially Christian people. And you'll find that the aim of your life is no longer self-glorification, but the glory of God. These all come through justification by faith. And my prayer is that if there's any person here today who knows the Lord Jesus not, that you'd bow your knee, that you would unconditionally surrender to his lordship and become a follower of his. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, sometimes we study this doctrine of justification by faith rather coldly and clinically. And it's not intended to be that. It's the greatest news in the world. That those who were lost about to perish, those who were spiritually sick and dead, those who were on a ship about to go under for the last time, those who were declared enemies of an omnipotent God who certainly would be destroyed, can have salvation and peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for many of my brothers and sisters in this room. Thank you for my own salvation. Because Lord, I know I don't deserve it. None of us would ever have come to you on our own, but you pursued us. You heard our cry. You responded. And Father, through your spirit, you have transformed our life. Behold, all things have become new. And Lord, we have a new peace, peace in our heart, it comes from knowing that we're right with God, but a cessation of hostilities between a sinner and, and, a, and a holy God. We have a new hope. Father, we can endure all manner of suffering and trial and persecution because of a better day that lies ahead. Father, we have a, a new perspective on our suffering. It's not pointless and aimless. Suffering now becomes a means of our own sanctification. And, and Lord, ultimately, you give us a new love. You change the trajectory of our life forever and you give us a new love for you, for your word, for the church, and for the lost. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you that uh, through justification by faith in Christ alone, you did all these things. I pray you do it again many times over in the year ahead. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.